Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Here we are again for another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. During the last 20 years or so, it was not uncommon to witness adults and children approach a person in military uniform to thank them for their service. This was much different than my recollections as a young person, witnessing the enmity many returning servicemen received upon coming back from Vietnam. I think it is difficult for those individuals and families who haven't been part of the military or know people who have to either go to one extreme or the other, either demonize the military as being warmongering or to give abundant praise without a real understanding of what it is that these men and women have been involved in. Regardless of one's political views, what is true is that those in the service of their country and their families live lives that are often difficult and involve sacrifice. Many military personnel are currently facing some significant challenges, but surprisingly, it is not coming from enemy fire. They are being asked to either comply with a medical procedure to which they have either religious or constitutional objections. In many cases, they have submitted requests to be exempt and are being denied whole cloth. Some, as a result, are faced with court-martial, dishonorable discharge, and even the loss of their accrued benefits and pensions. So this brings up the question, do military people give up their constitutional rights when they join the service? I have with me today retired Colonel John Eidsmo, who is also a constitutional lawyer and a constitutional expert to explore this with me. Thanks for joining me today, Colonel Eidsmo. And thank you, Ms. Schwartz. I certainly appreciate being with you and appreciate all you do through Calcedon and through this podcast to get the word out to those who need to hear. Well, good. Well, thank you. So we're mutually appreciated. So tell my listeners, if you would, before we actually jump into the question about your background and why you are a good and qualified person to discuss this topic. Well, after college, I went to law school and didn't learn anything about constitutional law at law school. But after that, I served with the Air Force. I was five years of active duty. And then see what happened while I was on active duty there. I was a judge advocate or Air Force lawyer and held the rank of captain at that time. But I remember one night, this is after Vietnam was over with. And although I didn't serve in Vietnam, I served during the Vietnam era. And I remember very well the kind of lack of appreciation that you are talking about. But at any rate, I remember after the war was over, I left my office one night and I looked back at the office and I thought, what would happen if I just didn't show up tomorrow? Not that I had any intention of doing that. I thought, well, they'd bring in another judge advocate or a lawyer to do the job just like I'm doing it. And the Air Force would just go on as though nothing had happened. And so I started thinking, you know, the real war right now, now that Vietnam is over, is for the hearts and souls of people. And so long as I'm here as a JAG in the Air Force, I'm kind of like a non-combatant in the real war. 
So I decided to transfer into the reserves. And then I went to the seminary to prepare to get a theological education. I wasn't sure that I wanted to go into the ministry. But at any rate, I was practicing law in the mornings or in the afternoons and going to classes at the seminary in the morning. And I began handling some homeschool cases and also handling cases involving farmers who were, in my opinion, being bullied by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And the joke in the office was that I was spending one day a month at the Air Force base and reserve duty defending the Air Force and the other 29 days in court fighting the government, to which my answer was that I was defending the government where it belonged and fighting the government where it didn't belong. Also, in my seminary days, I began reading the writings of R.J. Rushdoony, and I became convinced of the need for a thorough world and life view. Anyway, so after I graduated from the seminary, I went to teach for the law school at Oral Roberts University, teaching constitutional law and handling more constitutional law cases. After that law school, went out to the Regent Law School at Virginia Beach, Virginia. I then went to the Jones Law School in Montgomery, Alabama, taught constitutional law there for 15 years, handled First Amendment cases as well, and then served as a senior staff attorney for the Alabama Supreme Court. And for the last 13 years, I have been the senile counsel, or I guess they say senior counsel, I say senile counsel, for the Foundation for Moral Law. That's a legal defense organization in Montgomery, Alabama, that defends the Constitution as intended by its framers and defends religious liberty cases and right-to-life cases and others of interest to constitutional Christians, as well as writing books on the Founding Fathers, things like that. But that's basically my background. Your background gives you a full-orbed view of not only constitutional issues, but biblical issues as well. So some people would say, I had no idea that military people are facing this kind of crisis. They would also say how many people are involved, what will happen to the ability of America to defend itself. So why don't you make your way, if you would, into our question about do military people give up their constitutional rights, and also a brief overview of what's happening right now. Well, that's a lot. It's going to take a while, but let's well, take your time. Over, We've got time. <laughs> let's begin over at Arlington Cemetery. And there, at the amphitheater there, you see engraved in stone the words of George Washington, where he said, when we assumed the soldier, we did not lay aside the citizen." In other words, soldiers are citizens, and therefore, it'd be expected that they would have constitutional rights. And yes, the attitude does persist occasionally that you give up your constitutional rights when you enter the service, but no court has ever said that. And in fact, the Supreme Court of the United States has repeatedly said the opposite. You think, for example, in the case of Chapel versus Wallace, a Supreme Court decision in 1983, in which the court said, our citizens in uniform may not be stripped of basic rights simply because they have doffed their civilian clothes. And likewise, in Greer versus Spock in 1976, 
Supreme Court there said, the military enclave is kept free of partisan influence, but individual servicemen are not isolated from participation as citizens in our democratic process. Now, I have to say that during the Obama administration's years, there were some attacks upon religious liberty in the military. There was one group in particular headed by a guy by the name of Mikey Weinstein, who called the MRFF, or the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, which, in my opinion, stood for the very opposite of military religious freedom. They would keep insisting that those in the military who witnessed to other military people about their faith were spiritual predators or spiritual rapists. And Mikey Weinstein seemed to have some access to high-level places in the Obama administration. And at times, he'd be able to get orders that would prohibit proselytization, as they would call it. And when Christians in the military would push back on this, usually the military would back off. The position that the Air Force finally took on that question is kind of a, in my opinion, frankly, a, a rather silly one. And I say that having retired from the Air Force. But basically, they said that military people may share their faith, but they may not proselytize. Well, what is proselytization besides sharing your faith? In other words, it's contradictory. But what they seem to mean is that you can share your faith so long as you don't use pressure in doing so. A couple of things that a soldier needs to be careful of if he is sharing his faith with somebody else is don't use your rank, especially if you outrank the person that you're sharing your faith with. Don't use your rank as a means of trying to influence them. And also don't use high pressure tactics in doing so. So long as you don't do that, you should be okay on being able to share your faith with other people in the military and other people, whatever they believe, should be free to share their faith with you. I'll tell you an incident that I had, I guess this probably would have been in the late 1980s. I was in the reserves at that time. I had done some of my reserve duty out of the Air Force Academy in the Judge Advocate Department there and teaching some classes there in the Law Department of the Air Force Academy. And I got a call from the Chief of Chaplains there and he was telling me how they had been having some programs there dealing with character development. And one of the speakers they had had come in was Chuck Colson, who had spoken on ways of developing character and military personnel. And these were required mandatory formations, but those who listened to the speakers didn't have to agree with them. And they weren't high pressure things, but a number of speakers were there. And when Chuck Colson spoke, and I had a chance to listen to a tape of his lecture and also to read the transcript of it, both. But when Colson spoke, he said that character consists of two things. First, it consists of an objective knowledge of right and wrong. And secondly, it consists of having the intestinal fortitude to do the right. In fact, this is after he'd been in prison. And he said, I knew right from wrong but I didn't have the intestinal fortitude to do the right, and I wound up in prison. And anyway, so then he went on to say, in answer to a question, how did you acquire the ability to know 
or to adhere to the right? Where did you get the strength of character to adhere to the right? And he simply answered that, well, for me, didn't say it was for everybody, but for me, it was through learning of Jesus Christ and trusting him as my savior. And he gave a very low-key testimony. And it seemed to be well-received by most, but there were a couple who had objected. And they came to me to write an opinion about it because they thought that the JAG office there at the academy would probably just echo what they'd been taught in law school. And so they hoped that I would preempt it with an opinion of my own. Basically, what I noted was that there were a number of speakers that came talking about character development. Some of them came from a religious standpoint and different religions. Others came from a secular standpoint. While it was a mandatory formation, nobody was required to agree with anything that any speaker said. And I said, under these circumstances, I don't think there is any establishment of religion problem or any violation of anybody's free exercise of religion by having a series of mandatory formations like this on character development. And I just simply said that nothing in the First Amendment guarantees that you should never have to hear anything you disagree with. Well, I was told that the commandant of the academy said after reading my opinion, well, that's exactly what I think. And so long as I'm commandant here, that's the way it's going to be. However, the Air Force changes commandants every several years, and I'm sure he's long gone now. But that just exemplifies what some of the issues have been. So would you say that um, different administrations have a different view of things like constitutional rights and specifically the rights guaranteed in the First Amendment so that service personnel aren't always sure how things are going to be decided? So for the example, the people who are being told they must get vaccinated and they wish not to, is it a surefire thing that their constitution and religious liberties will be respected? Yes, it certainly is true that military people may be uncertain as to how they may exercise their constitutional rights, depending on who is in office. And that's true for people on the outside of the military as well. And one of the things I noted about President Obama is that he would often speak about freedom of worship. Now, that sounded perfectly innocent and good, but when you think about it a minute, that sounds like a very narrow view of what religious liberty really means. And what it could mean is that we are free to worship God within the four corners of our church and perhaps in our home, but once we get outside the church or outside our home, we need to leave our religious convictions behind. They have no place in the public arena. Well, when President Trump campaigned for office, he had several questions asked of him about violations of religious liberty within government circles. And he said that, yes, there have been quite a few violations of this, but we are going to attack that bigly. I love that word, and I don't know if it was a word before then, but it became a word thereafter, and he certainly did. And on May 4th of 2017, after Trump took office, he published Executive Order 13798, an order titled to promote free speech and religious liberty. And while President Biden has 
erased a lot of Trump's orders. So far as I know, this one is still in effect. And the order says in part, it shall be the policy of the executive branch to vigorously enforce federal law's robust protections for religious freedom. The founders envisioned a nation in which religious voices and views were integral to a vibrant public square and in which religious people and institutions were free to practice their faith without fear or discrimination or retaliation by the federal government. And it went on to say in Section 2, all executive departments and agencies shall, to the greatest extent practicable and to the extent permitted by law, respect and permit the freedom of persons and organizations to engage in religious and political speech. Now, clearly, all executive departments and agencies includes the Department of Defense. Now, in accordance with that order, on 23 June of 2021, the Secretary of the Air Force issued an order, and this is Air Force Instruction 52-201, that basically echoes Trump's executive order. It says, in part, that Department of the Air Force policy to place a high value on the rights of airmen and guardians to observe the tenets of their religions. And when I'm saying Air Force here, I'm quite sure that the other branch of the services have adopted similar orders that are very similar to this. It goes on to say that when someone believes that there's a practice going on that violates his religious convictions, he needs to submit a request for an accommodation. This is consistent with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it goes on to say, commanders will approve the religious accommodation request unless a compelling interest exists for the policy, practice, or duty from which the member is seeking religious accommodation. And further, it says, any restriction on the expression of sincerely held religious beliefs must use the least restrictive means with respect to the applicant to achieve the compelling governmental interest. Let me give you one example that goes back into the early 1990s. And in my 23 years with the Air Force, and then about 16 years with the Guard thereafter, my Air Force duty was all as a judge advocate or lawyer, and my Guard duty was mostly as a chaplain. Some people see a conflict of interest there, and I just say there's no difference at all, law and grace or law and gospel. But at any rate, back in 1992, I was contacted by a captain who was an Air Force Academy graduate and a KC-135 pilot and crew commander. And this is right at the time of Desert Shield, or after Desert Shield. His commander had inspected his plane there, there at Riyadh in Saudi Arabia and found that he had two boxes that contained 80 New Testaments in Arabic. And there was a regulation for the military there that, because we didn't want to offend the Muslims, but the regulation simply said that military personnel may not possess pornography, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, or religious articles, except for personal use. Notice that religious articles are placed in with these other things, but they do have the exception for personal use, but pretty hard for him to argue that he intended 80 
New Testaments for personal use, especially when he didn't know any Arabic. Anyway, they were going to court-martial him for this, and he contacted me and asked if I could provide his defense, which I said I would be very happy to do. They wanted to court-martial him, and as I looked at the case, one of the things that I discovered was that the Saudi ambassador to the United States had made the statement that or the Saudis had never insisted that we not have chapel services. They'd never insisted that our chaplains could not wear crosses on their uniforms. He says, the only thing that we ever insisted was that you not proselytize the Muslim population. And so the argument that I made in this case was that, first of all, you have a compelling interest in preventing him from bringing in New Testaments only if you can show that he intended to use them to proselytize the Muslim population. And can you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he intended these for the Muslim population rather than for the approximately 100,000 Christians who reside in Saudi Arabia? With that, the Air Force offered him what they call Article 15 punishment instead, which is non-judicial. It means that it doesn't go on any permanent record. We saved him from a court-martial, which I don't know that we could have won. And he is flying as a captain for a major airline today, which he would not be able to do if he had a felony conviction on his record. I still hear from him at Christmas. And he asks me from time to time, did I do the right thing? And my answer to him was, and still is, I believe that it is God's will that the people of Saudi Arabia hear the gospel, whether their rulers want them to hear it or not. Now, whether he wants the gospel brought into them on KC-135s in a way that could jeopardize a military mission and a military alliance, I'm not sure, and I'm still not. That might give you one example of the way some of these free exercise issues have played out in the past. Okay, so let me ask you this. There's often a difference between stated policy and actual carrying it out. Do you see a lot of that conflict going on right now on the issue I mentioned? On the vaccination issue? If you don't mind, I'd like to save that issue for a little bit later because that is the most recent crisis that we're facing. And if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to build up to that just a little bit. No, that's fine. That's fine. Now, probably the next area that we've had a lot of trouble in is in regard to the gay rights issue in the military. And anyway, of course, in my impeccable timing, I wrote my dissertation for the Air War College on the case against homosexuals in the military and submitted it the day before President Clinton announced he was lifting the gay ban. But you recall that he received a lot of criticism for this and finally compromised with the don't ask, don't tell policy, which was doomed to failure from the very beginning because we were saying that we were going to tolerate that which we really weren't going to tolerate. And a few years later, the whole thing got scrapped. And of course, homosexuals were then allowed in the military and same-sex couples, transgenders, and all sorts of things like this. But I had a lieutenant colonel who was stationed overseas And he had written a letter for Stars and Stripes, that's the military publication overseas, in which he criticized the military for what he called a double standard, that 
They were muzzling Christians, but opening the door to homosexuals. And he was issued a letter of reprimand, which goes in your record, and there's no punishment associated with it formally, but you can have the practical effect of probably denying you promotion. In other words, it meant that his chances of moving up to the full colonel were probably about dead at that point, but he was over 20 years, so his benefits were insured. But anyway, so we tried to fight in that case, saying that he had a right to free speech, he had a right to express himself. Their argument was that because of his rank, that when he was criticized in the policy of the Air Force, it would be taken as an official statement of the Air Force, to which my response was, this is absolutely ridiculous. You're going to say that a mere lieutenant colonel when he writes a letter criticizing the Air Force, is expressing the official policy of the Air Force, nobody's going to think that. But anyway, that was one example where I think his superiors were probably in worried about maybe being disciplined by the Obama administration themselves for not towing the line on the gay rights policy. But anyway, so we were seeing a number of instances like this of people who were being muzzled for not speaking up on gay rights. There was a lot of concern about what's going to happen if military chaplains are forced to perform gay weddings. And we're still concerned about that. But no military chaplain yet has been forced to do so. And I'll talk later about some of the special concerns that we have for military chaplains. That's another issue entirely there. But the issue I guess we're looking at right now that really is confronting the military more than any other on the religious issue is the question about vaccination. And the military, the various branches have been issuing their orders in which they are requiring all military personnel to get vaccinated for the COVID, but offering them the opportunity to submit requests for either a religious exemption, in other words, it violates my religious beliefs, or a medical exemption, meaning I'm especially sensitive to this, I've had reactions to vaccination in the past, or things like that, or an administrative accommodation, which means that for administrative reasons, it would be inconvenient for the military to require me to get this at this time. Anyway, so... They were giving the option of submitting these requests for exemption. The problem was that they were summarily denying the religious exemptions. As a result of this, we've had several cases that have been filed, and three have been especially noteworthy. One is the Navy SEALs 1 case, which was out of Florida, in a federal court in Florida, involving some Navy SEALs who had been denied religious exemption, and they were suing in federal court saying that the, the Navy should not be allowed to punish us by kicking us out or court-martialing us or disciplining us in other ways. And the federal judge in that case ruled in their favor. It was a preliminary injunction. We case is still ongoing, but he said in that case that he didn't see the air, that the Navy had established a compelling interest requiring that they get that vaccination. And he then issued an order that all branches of the service were required to submit to him every two weeks a record of 
how many requests for exemption had been submitted, how many had been granted versus how many had been denied, how many had been appealed, and how many had been granted versus denied on appeal. Likewise with medical and with administrative. The next one we had was in Texas, the Northern District of Texas, and here it was a group of Navy SEALs and then some Navy divers and some other Navy personnel that all joined together in this action. And First Liberty, an organization out of Texas, brought that case. We filed an amicus brief in support of these Navy SEALs. A couple of the arguments that we made in the case were, first of all, as far as the Navy claiming that they have a compelling interest in military necessity, requiring that people get vaccinated to protect others around them. Well, number one, we think the evidence does not support that because the evidence is now showing quite strongly that while the vaccine may have an effect of reducing the symptoms of COVID for those who get it, it has very little, if any, effect of preventing you from contracting COVID or from spreading COVID to others. In fact, I even make the argument that if you agree that COVID can be transmitted asymptomatically, if the vaccine causes people to be asymptomatic, then they're more likely to be out in the workplace and so on and be more likely to be spreading it than if they had not been vaccinated. So that means that the only interest that the military has is in protecting the individual from the consequences of not getting vaccinated. It doesn't prevent the individual from hurting anybody else because it doesn't prevent the transmission of, of COVID. That was part of our argument. Part of our argument, too, was that you have many in the military that, while they were requesting a religious exemption, they also noted that they themselves had, had had COVID, that they were therefore positive for antibodies, and that the protection they had from this was better than any protection that would be given to them by the vaccine. And the third thing we noted was that the Navy had given several thousand medical exemptions and several thousand administrative exemptions, but no religious exemptions. Now, if you can grant thousands of medical exemptions and thousands of administrative exemptions, we argued, the Navy has forfeited the argument that military necessity prevents them from giving religious exemptions. If they can grant military medical exemptions, they can grant religious exemptions. And we raised that argument, especially in a case in Georgia. This was subsequent to these others, in which we had a federal judge there in a case involving an Air Force officer this time. And in this case, as in the, the case of Judge O'Connor in Texas, they both took up that argument very strongly. They said, number one, it is bad faith that you claim you're granting religious exemptions when in fact you turn down every one. You're not evaluating these exemptions, you are rubber stamping denials. Those were the exact words of Judge O'Connor in the in the Navy case. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of this was echoed by the judge in Georgia later on. And 
Shortly after that, the Marines had granted a total of four exemptions out of thousands, and three of those were for people who were already getting out anyway, and so that didn't matter a whole lot. The Air Force granted nine religious exemptions, but they granted those the day after the hearing in that case. And the judge in that case noted that, but didn't seem very impressed by it. Point is, in every case now where a federal judge has ruled on whether or not the military has to grant religious exemptions to those who qualify for that exemption, in all three of these cases, they have ruled in favor of the military members. So let me ask you a question, because I think this is important. There's something that irritates me to no end, that some bureaucratic position is going to evaluate someone's sincere religious belief. How can the administrative person be in a position to say, you don't really have this belief, when the person says, I have this belief? Well, I think that's a very, very good point. And that's one of the points that we argued in our brief, well, in both the Air Force and the Navy case. But we pointed out a case of U.S. versus Ballard. This is a 1944 case and involved a man who was convicted of mail fraud. And this man claimed in the mails that he had, he was in contact with angels, that these angels would communicate information to him. And that if you wanted to know something, that these angels could tell you, send him some money through the mail and he'll talk to the angels for you and he'll tell you what they say. And he was convicted of mail fraud for this. His conviction was overturned. And the court said in this case that you can't evaluate this case based upon whether or not he is really in communication with angels. All you can evaluate here is whether this is a sincere religious belief. And the court said men may believe what they cannot prove. They may not be put to the proof of their religious doctrines or beliefs. Religious experiences, which are as real as life to some, may be incomprehensible to others. Yet the fact that they may be beyond the ken of mere mortals does not mean that they can be made suspect before the law. And then in 1980, we had a case, Thomas versus Review Board. This involved a Jehovah's Witness. He was working in a steel foundry and they reassigned him there to work on a section that produced tank turrets. And he said he couldn't do this because he was a Jehovah's Witness. As such, he didn't believe in war and military service. And so this violated his religious beliefs. Well, the government took the position on this that, no, this was not his religious conviction. It was only a personal ideological belief on this because the Jehovah's Witnesses were opposed to war. And they were opposed to military service, but they weren't opposed to building tank turrets. Not only that, they noted there was another Jehovah's Witness who worked in the same foundry. And he said that he was building tank turrets. He didn't think that violated his religious beliefs. And the JWs had never disciplined him for that. And so they said, this is only a personal belief. But the Supreme Court reversed on this. And they simply said that Basically, the same thing as what they said in Ballard, men believe what they cannot prove. But they went on to say that the fact that another Jehovah's Witness had no scruples about working on tank turrets, that intra-faith differences of that kind are not uncommon among followers of a particular creed, 
and the judicial process is singularly ill-equipped to resolve such differences in regard to religious clauses. One can, of course, imagine a asserted claim so bizarre, so clearly non-religious in motivation, as not to be entitled to protection under the free exercise clause, but that is not the case here, and the guarantee of free exercise is not limited to beliefs which are shared by all of the members of a religious sect. Courts are not arbiters of scriptural interpretation. So the Supreme Court overruled and ruled in favor of Mr. Thomas. Point being is that your point is very well taken here, that the courts are not to evaluate religious beliefs, and we're seeing in some cases, not only in the military, where they'll have a group of chaplains that might be conducting the evaluation as to the sincerity of your beliefs and might ask pointed questions. In fact, I've seen lists of questions that chaplains are supposed to grill people on, like, have you ever had a flu shot? If you didn't object to that, how can you object to this? And other questions like that. But a couple things that I would point out out of that. First of all, that if you have a chaplain who may be endorsed by a denomination, that has no objection to vaccines, having that chaplain sit in judgment upon the religious exemption request of another, I think is an inherent conflict of interest. And calling upon a chaplain to do that, but also directing the chaplain into how he's conducted the interview, I think that that is a violation of what should be the chaplain's independence in this area. Anyway, so I think that whole area, they've gone way, way too far. I've had people ask me, how do I answer if they ask me, do you object to a flu vaccine? And I said, well, first of all, I can't put words into your mouth. You have to decide what your religious objection is. I can't state it for you. However, what you might simply say is that at the time you last took a flu vaccine, you hadn't really thought through the issue that much. Furthermore, as far as you knew at that time, flu vaccines were not made from tissue that came from aborted fetuses. And there are adverse reactions here to these COVID vaccines that did not exist at that time that we didn't know about. And so I'm not sure whether I take a flu vaccine again, but I know I have a religious objection here. And that's what counts. So let me ask you this. There's a part of me that says... If no one can truly evaluate my convictions with regards to what the scripture says, what I feel God is directing me because of the scripture, is the very process of submitting and a request basically saying, yeah, that's true, but you get to decide. In other words, part of me says just submitting the request sort of indicates that the authority lies with the person who's looking at the request and then deciding whether or not to grant it. I'm inclined to agree with you on that. In fact, I would say that a person who has a religious objection should simply be able to state, I have a religious objection, and that's it. And I'm not even sure they have the authority to inquire what the nature of your objection is. We published a paper here at the Foundation for Moral Law on the question about to vax or not to vax. And anyway, we probably need to revise that again. So much has taken place since then, but I listed there some of the objections that were commonly raised and the fetal tissue has been one. One that has been raised from a Catholic standpoint 
and this does not have to be limited to Catholics, is what they called therapeutic proportionality. Now, what the Catholic Church means by that term is that as a Catholic, one has a duty to evaluate a medical treatment, procedure, drug, anything like that, weighing on the one hand the potential benefits from it against the potential risks or adverse effects. And if the person decides that the adverse effects outweigh the beneficial effects, then the person has a duty to God to reject that vaccination because his body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he has a duty to take care of it. Another that I have raised myself is that God is has established civil government, and he's also placed limits on civil government. And when civil government exceeds the limits that God has placed on it, then it becomes the right, and I would say also the duty, of the citizen to resist what becomes then tyranny, as Rushduni used to say. And Rushduni once defined tyranny as government acting without lawful authority. And so if government does not have lawful authority to order this vaccination, then I have a duty under God to resist that. And so those are some of the objections, but I have to tell each individual, you got to raise the objection yourself. I can't put words in your mouth. But I'm inclined to say, as I think you're saying, once the issue, once the objection has been raised, the government's role is really limited to granting the exemption and nothing more. We know what it reminded me of. It reminded me of how during the reign of Mao Zedong in China, that people, oftentimes Christians or intellectuals, were required to write their confessions. And these listing of why you shouldn't have to do this, it's like you're confessing to them, and then they can evaluate whether you have satisfied their criteria. Well, if their criteria is either totally humanistic, then you wouldn't expect them to grant your request. So it seems to me that we really do have one religion dominating another. And that's really the way all history is going to be, because understanding what all religions are, that everyone is motivated by religious beliefs, even those those religious beliefs are atheism. And so there's always going to be conflict like that. Right. Do you think that there are people within the middle management of various branches of the service that figure if they can just bully someone into it, then even if they eventually will lose a case, they're looking for numbers of people vaccinated so that even if their threats don't have real substance, they know that they're putting service people, especially who have families to take care of, in a position that they're almost forcing them to go against their conscience. I think they know that. I think there's a lot in the military, particularly I find this within the Alabama National Guard here. There are many there that are like middle-level mid, mid-level management people in the military, say field-grade officers and so on, that don't want to do this. They are looking for every excuse that they can to delay on this. But then again, within the military, you have the feeling we have to obey orders. And yes, the military really couldn't function if people didn't obey orders. There is a duty to disobey an unlawful order, but nevertheless, the military does have to function on orders. And so you understand where that is coming from. But yeah, there are some who don't care. 
there are some who think that these people raising religious objections, well, they're just being silly about it. One of the things that I've heard sometimes from even conservative Christians is something like, well, back when I was in the army, I had to roll up my sleeve and get a whole bunch of shots. So why should this be any different? I understand that question. The answer I would give to it is that, first of all, we're dealing with a vaccine here that some will argue, medically speaking, is not really a vaccine in the actual sense of the word. That has not been as thoroughly tested as any other. We're dealing with one where the nature of the threat that is of COVID is much more controversial than any other in the past. And the effectiveness of the vaccine and the potential side effects of that vaccine are much more controversial than they've ever been in the past. We're dealing with a situation here where as far as side effects from the vaccine, there could be side effects that aren't known for years to come. Consider, for example, the military people today that were in Vietnam and are years later coming to deal with Agent Orange and its effects. So this is different. Those are some of the concerns that people are raising. But I would say, really, most of the military, those involved in enforcing this order, are probably just obeying orders themselves and if they had their choice, they probably wish they wouldn't have to. So that brings up a question that many people have asked. So you're someone who spent time in the military. Given the climate of things that are happening, would you recommend young people to enlist in the service, knowing that there are the kinds of situations where they may be forced to do things that go against their conscience? That's a very, very hard question to answer. and. My own son went through the Air Force Academy and served 20 plus years as an Air Force pilot and is now retired and is flying for one of the airlines now. He just retired a few years ago and even in his time, he didn't have as many conflicts with his convictions as are probably coming on the horizon in the near future. As a pilot, he wasn't in a position to be dealing with gay marriage issues and other things like that. But Yes, I can certainly see where military people coming in today are going to be facing pressure on their consciences that I never had to face and that other people before me never had to face. But on the other hand, I'd have to say that there is a need for Christians in the military, particularly in the officer corps, more than ever. And so I hate to see us abandon the military on this. And what I'm hoping on this is traditionally the military has been a bastion of traditional values and conservative thought. And I did a lot of my reserve duty lecturing at the Air Force Academy and that would have been in the 80s, well, let's see, maybe even 70s, but 80s and 90s. And I would say during that time that there was probably no government institution, state or federal, anywhere in the country that treated Christianity as fairly or even as favorably as the Air Force did. That is gradually changing. But I'm hoping that once some of the radicals like the Biden administration are out of office, that the military will return to its traditional values, which are going to be basically conservative values. Let me tell you one thing else that's positive happening in the military, and that concerns the chaplain corps. Now, within the 
Well, let me say, first of all, in regard to what's happening, their chaplains come in based upon their denominations. And most of the liberal Protestant seminaries today are producing people who have no interest in going into the military. Basically, a lot of them are producing hippie pacifists. They don't want to be military chaplains. And so the more evangelical, Bible-believing seminaries are kind of filling in the gap, and a substantial majority of even or of Protestant chaplains today are coming out of evangelical seminaries, and that's a positive sign. I would say my interaction with chaplains today, they're much more evangelical than they were the days when I was on active duty with the Air Force. So that's a positive sign. But might add, too, that chaplain particularly is in a difficult position, and a chaplain has to be a diplomat. I had one brigadier general chaplain who was a Roman Catholic, but he was very much on our side on the moral values that we're talking about here. And he simply put it this way, you can like this or dislike it, but he said, preach what is true, do what is possible. In other words, there might be limits to how much you can do. But one position that we have concerning the chaplain is that the chaplain has a duty to meet the religious needs of all members of the military. Now, that's difficult when, as you and I perceive it, all people need Jesus Christ. Right. And how do you handle that when there are people in the military that don't think that is their spiritual need? Well, part of it is having a variety of chaplains, and it shouldn't be that difficult for me if I have a Muslim here that wants to be counseled, that if I can't counsel him in accordance with his religious convictions, that I can refer him to somebody who can. And so that's one way of handling that situation. One issue that comes up is prayer at commander's call and prayer at other military events. Commander at many of these events will call upon the chaplain to open in prayer, but may object if the chaplain prays in the name of Jesus Christ. And chaplains will sometimes say, but my religious convictions say that I have to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, fortunately, for the most part, we're pretty well protected on that. The regulations of all branches of the service say that a chaplain is entitled to perform any religious ritual in accordance with the usage of his denomination. I had this come up at Ielson Air Force Base in Alaska one time, and the chaplain, where, where the issue was being raised, and this is decades ago, that he was a Southern Baptist. And so that really well settled the question, and they had to let him pray in accordance with the usage of his denomination. But I think his commander probably capsulized the issue there when he said, there is no place for an evangelical chaplain in the United States military. Wow. And he saw the conflict. I think there are ways of resolving the conflict, and I disagree with it. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, so those are some of the issues that arise. And I can tell you a couple other things that I had when I was in service there. I had one young airman come to me one time and say that his first sergeant objected to his reading the Bible at his desk. And my first reaction was, no, wait a minute, the Air Force isn't paying you to read your Bible. The Air Force is paying you to do your job. You read your Bible in your own time. Mm-hmm. But he said, well, yes, but that's what I do. I read it only when I'm on break or during the lunch hour. And my first sergeant, he sits there in the lunch hour and reads Playboy. So why can't I read the Bible? Well, that puts it in a whole different light, doesn't it? Yes, yes. But let me give you another case here. And 
This is a case that involving a young sergeant who was a Mormon, and he objected to being required to clean the coffee pots because as a Mormon, Mormons don't, most Mormons at least, don't believe in drinking coffee. He said, I'm willing to clean the latrines, I'm willing to do other duty instead for everything that I got. He was a very, very fine soldier, but if possible, I'd like to be exempted from cleaning the coffee pots. And so I had a meeting then with his first sergeant, with his commander, and with several others there. The question that they kept asking was, do we have to allow this? And finally, they agreed, we'll allow it. But I got to thinking about that. I mean, this is back when I was on active duty. It's before I taught constitutional law and so on. And I came back to that case many years later. And I was thinking, do we have to allow it? That's not the appropriate question. The appropriate question is, why can't we allow it? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and the point is that for the most part, not just Christianity, but most religions teach values that are consistent with a good soldier. Most religions teach courage, teach devotion to duty, teach honesty, integrity, concern for your comrades, and so on. And that being the case, I would argue that it is in the interest of the military to make sure that military people and their families have as full opportunity to freely exercise their religion and develop in their religious faiths as can possibly be allowed. And so the question should be not, do we have to allow it, but why can't we allow it? My hope is that some of the problems we're having right now, some of the threats to religious freedom in the military right now, my hopes is that this country will ultimately return to sanity and some of these will be set to rest. David Horowitz once made the statement that ultimately the radical left is at war with God and nature. And that means ultimately they're going to lose. But in the process of losing, they can do a lot of damage. True. I've actually heard military families comment that when they're talking about the stresses they're going through with this issue, that sometimes even people in their church will say things like, well, see, you shouldn't be in the military anyway. And that seems to me to be a very retreatist perspective, because if all Christians were to leave the military, then you wouldn't have a Christian presence, nor would you have the presence of what is true and right and should be the basis of how we conduct ourselves as part of a civil government. But it sounds like the JAG service that you were part of is a very important aspect of places where Christians should be placed so that they would be able to help when challenges that need to be met come up. Would you agree? I would agree. And in fact, what, one thing I found when I was, of course, I came into the Air Force in 71, and this is kind of in a very liberal era. Law schools were training out disciples of Earl Warren and separation of church and state, liberalism and so on. And most of the JAGs that I served with on active duty were very much of that mentality. After I transferred into the reserves, I began to find more and more fellow JAGs who were Christians and would have an opportunity to make an impact. And so, yes, I think that is it. In fact, like I said, when I was considering whether to get out and go to seminary, because I felt that really I'm kind of like a non-combatant in the real world when I'm just here in the military. Well, if I had understood the 
Protestant concept of vocation, Luther's view in particular of the sacredness of all vocations, I probably would never have left. But I came to realize as time went on that, especially after I made lieutenant colonel, I found that I could have more impact on policy than before. And yes, I think this is an area where Christians belong. And I would say for those who are listening that I would consider a military career. And if you're interested in law school, I would certainly recommend you look at the law school where I teach, the Oak Brook College of Law, which was established in California for homeschool graduates, but is not limited to homeschool graduates, but it's a distance learning law school. Just look it up, Oak Brook College of Law or obcl.edu as one way of getting a legal education. And if you're thinking about being a JAG because you've watched that TV series JAG, I'll only say to you that I enjoy that show, but you need to recognize it bears no resemblance whatsoever to what the actual life of a JAG is. Other than that, it's a great show. Right. That's probably true about so many things. I've talked to nurses who uh, watch medical shows and they pull their hair out and they'll point out that they don't even have the IV connected to the patient. So, yeah, these are usually very unrealistic depictions. I'd also say the same thing about any who might be considering going into the ministry and might be interested in being a military chaplain, either as a full-time career or as a guardsman or a reservist. Especially, let's say, if you're serving a little church where that church can't really pay you a full salary, being in the guard or in the reserve can be a way of supplementing your salary as well as having quite a great ministry to a lot of people as a chaplain. And so I would consider that as well. Good. That's good. I would never have thought of that. So one final question, and then I will say thank you for giving your time for, to me today. If military people find their religious liberty threatened and they're not getting proper responses, where can they go for help? Quite a few places. And one thing I was going to mention, too, in regard to the chaplain in particular is that Army regulations, and I think all of the all of the branches will say that the chaplain is to speak with a prophetic voice. And if your commander doesn't like what you're saying, you can just point out regulations say I'm supposed to be doing this. But at any rate, if you feel like your religious convictions are being violated, you might first just go to the local JAG or the local chaplain, and they may support you or they may not. But there are other places you can go outside and several of the groups that exist for the purpose of defending religious freedom. One that the one I serve for is the Foundation for Moral Law. We are located in Montgomery, Alabama, and our founder, Judge Roy Moore, is a West Point graduate and was a company commander in Vietnam. And then, of course, I'm retired military myself. So, well, we handle religious liberty cases generally, we have special interest in those for the military. Another very good organization is called First Liberty. They're out of Texas. Kelly Shackelford is the head of this organization, but one man in particular that handles a lot of their military matters is Mike Berry, who is a Marine Reserve JAG, and I believe Lieutenant Colonel. And anyway, so they're a good group. Alliance Defending Freedom is another. For chaplains who might be listening, there is an organization, and you might just go online and just Google this. It's called the Evangelical Chaplains Alliance, Evangelical Chaplains Alliance, and they're willing to help you. Now, another thing that a chaplain can do, 
every chaplain has to be endorsed by his denomination. And if you are part of a religious denomination that takes a conservative Bible-believing stance, like, for example, the Missouri Synod Lutheran or the Presbyterian Church in America or the OPC or, let's say, the Southern Baptist Convention, if you're a chaplain and you are being pressured to affirm gay rights in some way at some seminar or something like that, and you say you can't do it, they give you some pushback, go back to your endorsing agency and let them know I'm getting pressure like this. And your endorsement agency will take it up with the National Office for Endorsements in D.C., and they'll come to your defense. So you do have support in these areas. I think the upshot of what you're saying is if you know you're standing on truth and you know that you're doing what you're doing as a result of your faith and you don't want to get you don't want to go against your conscience that you can withstand intimidation but there're also people who will help you and for me anyway listening to what you had to say today colonel Eidsmo, is that you've given talking points and a lot of times people are just missing talking points and so hearing someone else explain it and how much it makes sense helps people to be able to stand against oppression. And sometimes it's just a matter of time. On the vaccination issue in particular, I'm always telling people, not just in the military, but in other jobs as well, that anything you can do to get delay is probably going to work in your favor. (laughs) Right. I think time is on our side on this issue. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you carving out some time in your schedule I know that you've encouraged me. I know that you already are encouraging a lot of military families. And hopefully those who are finding a lot of what you said to be new information will potentially reach out to people and support them in their efforts to follow their conscience before the Lord. Well, thank you for all you're doing. Listeners, you can always send your comments by email to out of the question podcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you, your reactions to this podcast and others, and topics you would like us to consider. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.